0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the provincial government pushes through a controversial Vancouver housing development. Will more neighbourhood organisations see Victoria hammer through contested projects? Plus, labour crunch. We look into hotels housing temporary foreign workers. Plus, we'll have the latest on the federal public workers' strike. And one speedo size too small. Why is Vancouver Park Board forced to crack down on inappropriate swimwear at our local pools? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's follow the aftermath of the BC government introducing Bill 26. Now, that bill, by the way, uh, is in regards to that controversial housing development project at Arbutus uh, and 7th Avenue. Yesterday, the provincial government announced that it planned to use legislation to push through that controversial housing project. Now, you may recall last summer, Vancouver Council approved the 13-story building uh, with 129 one-person social housing units, which would offer mental health uh, supports. Now, residents have fought against the project, calling themselves the Kitsilana Coalition. They even filed a petition in Supreme Court. Now, residents say the city doesn't consult appropriately, and that's a common um, accusation made when these types of housing projects uh, are introduced, not only here in Vancouver, but throughout uh, British Columbia. Uh, the residents say that the building doesn't fit into the character of the neighbourhood. It's a single 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 family neighbourhood as a school very close by to the proposed site as well. Now with this uh, provincial legislation, the two-year dispute comes to an end uh, and the project, one would argue, will be hammered through. Proponents of the project, of course, will say that it's a pushback against nimbyism and there is real need for this type of housing now. Uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan was on with our Simi Sarah this morning during her program and he defended the provincial government's decision. Take a listen.
1: You know, we've got people uh, that are struggling to have housing. You know, we've got people sleeping in Vanier Park, uh, near blocks away from where this uh, project uh, is being proposed. And having to wait years and years, get an approval, and then find out that we have to wait more years, uh, is just not acceptable when you're in a major housing crisis. So this piece of legislation that we brought forward is a reflection on the fact that uh, enough is enough. We have to get housing built because... Otherwise, we're going to have more and more people that are going to be sleeping in parks. And these are people, Simi, that uh, maybe they've lost a job or maybe they just couldn't find an apartment. So I think it's a responsibility of us as a province to step in uh, where it needs to step
0: in. And Generally, when you hear about these types of projects, that was the housing minister, uh, Ravi Kailan. And generally, when you hear about these um, projects, these are uh, conversations uh, disputes, uh, controversies that occur at the city hall level. That's where you get approval for these types of housing units. Uh, it's rare for the provincial government to come in and ram through these projects. And Mr. Kalan there articulated the provincial government's frustration that well even if something is approved, it can get um, uh, you know bogged down in, in, in court for a very long time. Nothing gets built. Now, former Vancouver Councillor Colleen Hardwick also spoke on this issue with our colleague Mike Smith earlier today. Take a listen to what she had to say.
2: There were two key uh, things to me. One was the physical form. You've got to realize that this is just 18 meters across the street from the St. Augustine's Elementary School. Uh, So the physical built form, which was um, anticipated, was too tall, too dense, inadequate setbacks from the road, access issues, shadowing issues, loss of green space. So what was going to be built on it was completely inconsistent with the rest of, of the area and poses problems. But the second problem was the composition of the residents. This was congregate housing, which is where you're putting a bunch of vulnerable people into that space, 129 units. But it's right across from um, another house that's there with women fleeing violence um, and, and uh, going through rehab. That was
0: Colleen Hardwick, former Vancouver councillor. She was in council a council member when the project was originally approved last summer. So what's this mean moving forward and what's it mean for other community groups in other parts of the city who are also expressing concerns over certain housing projects being considered for their neighbourhoods? Will the provincial government come in and push in legislation that basically moves these projects through without any local consultation, or at least taking into consideration uh, local concerns. Mario Michelli is the Executive Director of the Italian Cultural Centre. Mr. Michelli has uh, been on this program in regards to a uh, proposed uh, supportive housing project that uh, would be built near the Italian Cultural Centre. It would include a 64 social housing units with a six-storey residential building. Uh, Mr. Michelli, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me, Jeff.
0: Uh, I appreciate you waiting, but I wanted to to put this whole conversation into context in regards to what we heard yesterday, but what uh, your organization and many in your community will also, I'm sure, be thinking about. First of all, your reaction to this legislation that was introduced yesterday.
3: Well, needless to say, I was surprised. Um, You know, just the... Uh, for the provincial government to come in and really silence the voice of the Kitsilano coalition, who uh, apparently have some legitimate concerns about the project that's going on. And I think one of the fundamental issues that they're trying to raise is that the consultation process was, um, was inadequate and was misleading. That's the same thing that we've come to realize here at the Italian Cultural Centre.
0: Uh, And in in this case, what would you say to the argument that the minister has made that, look, uh, this was approved by elected officials at the city level and now is getting bogged down in court and it could take many months, many years perhaps, and we need housing built now for vulnerable people? What do you say to that argument?
3: You know, I I completely agree with the minister that we need housing. That's not the issue. The issue is what type of housing are they putting in what types of neighbourhoods. And the consultation process, at least with our project here on Grandview Highway, uh, we were told initially it was simply going to be a facility for adults and seniors with disabilities who are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness, they would have a spot there when when we had the initial conversation, we were completely supportive of the Italian cultural center. We have seniors on our facility. We thought this is a great way to integrate and provide the type of assistance and support that we can through our facility it wasn 't until February, sorry, that we found out it was going to be reverted to a uh, location that would also house people with severe mental health issues and addiction issues and we know they need support. I think the issue that we're looking for is make sure that we're putting these people in the right scenario and situation with the right supports.
0: And in this case, uh, and I think it may be very similar to the Kitsilana coalition, is that the fact that it's near uh, uh, schools or or single family neighborhoods what is the when you say the appropriate location, why would this not be the appropriate location are your concerns for this particular unit
3: well like I said, with these units, our concern is there's Vancouver Tech uh, high school is right across the street from this particular facility. Mm-hmm. this facility is in an area that has a the highest households with families with children in the lower mainland. And this, it goes to the consultation process, really, because the community feels left out. Those who took part in uh, the process feel a little deceived. Uh, the original intent was changed as to the use of this particular facility. Now, I'm working on another project with the city of Vancouver, and they've been incredibly consultative on all issues but one of the things that they told me about this neighborhood is the demographics so when you have 32% of the people in this catchment area Mm -hmm. and speak a language other than English in the home you would suspect that if Vancouver knows this they would be providing materials that were prepared in the other four languages that are spoken in this area they're also using the buzzwords that are difficult for people who are educated in Canada to 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 know. And you know, the wraparound services, supportive housing, it all supplies. It all uh, suggests that there's going to be some support. Uh, we have the highest number of 75 uh, and older people in this area. And all of the participation in the consultation is either through a virtual process or you need to register your objection online. Now, I don't want to seem ageist, but we know, at least at the Italian Cultural Centre, that with that demographic... We have to produce materials. They're not going online. Yeah. They're not utilizing the Internet.
0: So in the case of your particular the project that you've expressed concerns over, your the Italian Cultural Centre has, where are you in regards to that moving forward at this point?
3: Well, uh, we were fortunate because we had a... Well, at least we were asked to be consulted after the fact Uh councillor dominato asked for an amendment to the rezoning so that we have been in discussion with the uh with the city with the well i don't think bc housing was on the call recently and with the uh, the city planners and sorry community builders who are going to be operating this uh particular location and i i think the concern that I have, Jazz, is after I was on your show mm-hmm. and did a couple of other media pieces, I was receiving uh, calls and emails from people all around the province who've experienced a significant change in their neighborhood once one of these housing uh, projects was introduced into their neighborhood. I've, You know, we've, we, we have been uh, inundated with calls So what we've decided to do is in May, we're going to hold a community forum here Mm -hmm. and make sure that the languages that are spoken in this area are also going to be represented. The cultural components of the residents who live in this area will be addressed. And what we want to do is make sure that we're using the right model. You know, this government did a great job during COVID. We followed an evidence-based model that... uh, minister Dix and Dr Henry provided to us and I think we did a, relative, a relatively good job getting out of this pandemic but it was evidence based and now what we're hearing is this project and the process that they're using for these housing projects isn't an evidence based model that at least I can find some success uh for I've asked for evidence where does it did this model come from and where does has it been tested and proven true? I know that a couple of weeks ago you had uh, Dr. Summer, the professor mm-hmm. at, at, at SFU, and his research data was ordered to be destroyed. And I was thinking, why why would anybody ever get rid of data when it's speaking to one of the key crises that we're dealing with? throughout Vancouver and on other parts of the Lower Mainland. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't seem logical. Mario, we've run out of time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Jeff.
0: Well, this fall, the inaugural Sea Lens Film Festival will launch in Vancouver, and that's where Karen DeSange will debut her film, which details a long and rich history of South Asians and 6 who have helped Build British Columbia. The film is called Hidden Histories, the Sikh migration path to Canada. Now, the documentary film was inspired by Desange's book titled Untold Stories, the South Asian Pioneer Experience in British Columbia. Uh, Karen Desange is co producer of Hidden Histories, and she joins us now. Karen, thank you for speaking to us today. Hi, Chaz. Thanks for having me. What inspired, uh, before we get to the film, what inspired the, uh, the book itself? Because that's what, what led to the documentary film. What inspired the book for you?
4: Well, it started as a, a project to track our own forefather's journey to Canada. He migrated in 1906, Baba Ji Gyan Singh. So our family had gathered in 2006 to uh, and tap me on the shoulder, said, hey, kid, you've got some skills. Um, can you help us document his path? And I did that by interviewing family elders and really piecing that the puzzle together to see, you know, why he came, you know, what was his experience like when he came and what his contributions were. Mm-hmm. And then really, it was a, that was a personal journey of self-discovery, you know, growing up in an immigrant community. My parents never had time, right? My, my father was a mill worker and my mother a fish cannery worker. They were trying to survive. They didn't have time to sit down and tell us the stories of, of our migration path. So it's really, that's where it inspi- was inspired for, you know, as stories for our family. But there was nowhere to put it at that time. There was not a lot of, um, you know, historical archives in 2006. So it just sort of became a family, a family story for us. And, uh, you know, that, that changed very quickly. I learned that there was a huge interest in this topic.
0: And, and how did that move towards the documentary film? Because those are two different mediums, uh, different uh, types of storytelling that is required. I mean, the core story is always there, but it's a different type of storytelling. Uh, how did you move towards the moving pictures and sound?
4: Absolutely. So, you know, the book itself ended up becoming 32 multi-generational family stories. So not just stories about the Johal family or the DeSange family that I'm married into as well. You know, there was all these other families out there whose stories had never been told. They were untold. Um, so the book uh, gained a lot of uh, traction. It, you know, it, uh, I was getting orders from people in the U.S., in uh, Australia, in, in India. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, then Sick Lens approached me and said, you know, let's turn this book into a film. Uh, they are uh, an organization out of the U.S. and California. And, you know, let's get some of the elders who are really the living libraries of our community, let's get them on film. Mm -hmm. Let's find out the story from their own lived experience. They had a firsthand view of the very first settlers because they were the children of of the first to arrive. Many of them were born and raised here in Canada, uh, including my my father-in-law, Sergei Singh Desange, who's 93 it's one of the first, you know, a of, of wave of children in BC and to go to schools here in BC. So just imagine the recollections that I was able to distill uh, for the book and for the film as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up?
4: So I grew up in Richmond, B.C., in an in immigrant community. Mm-hmm. These stories were never taught. Uh, let me tell you then. I'm sure you echo the same experience, Jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't hear about uh, South Asian pioneer experiences. We heard about, you know, sort of, you know, white settler stories in, in schools. So there was a gap on the shelf. I wrote that book. There was a gap on the shelf even when my children were in school. They're now 21 and 18. So that's why I really was inspired to write that book. And uh, it just became so much more than just doing this for my own family. It became a, a sort of a passion project, a community service mm-hmm. for the whole community. And not just the South Asian or the Punjabi community. These are Canadian stories that resonate broadly. They reflect the fabric and the origins of Canada itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh- beyond uh, public schools today i think they're doing a much better job in reflecting the diversity of of the immigrant experience uh, to our students uh and you know you taking this on as a um, personal Uh, issue for yourself and telling your family's story do you think the Sikh community or the broader South Asian communities have they gotten better at telling and perhaps preserving their own history because I would argue that a lot of this is is also uh, the onus has to fall on uh, South Asian institutions locally and maybe may may mean building capacity for these uh, various organizations but have they been good enough in protecting uh, and preserving uh, the very heritage that you speak of?
4: I think in the past 10 to 15 years, I think we've certainly got a lot better. And uh, you, you're know, you seeing a lot of uh, commitment to this, um, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I consider myself a citizen historian, right? I'm not an academic. Mm-hmm. I have a day job, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I think that any one of us can do this. And there's so much room for uh, more you know South Asian citizen historians to step, step up, you know, interview their family elders, document the journeys and share it. And I hope that one day we have a place where, you know, we can house all of these incredible stories and and have people come and, and learn about this, the rich history and the contributions of South Asians and the, the Sikh community mm-hmm. uh, to, to Canada. I think that that is the that future. That's where I hope where we go. Uh, it,
0: it, by going through this process, uh, do you feel more Punjabi, more Sikh, or, or more Canadian?
4: You know what, I would say both. I mean, I recently had the opportunity, I was invited by the government of Canada to take these stories and to take the film back to India, if you can imagine that, where it all began. Mm-hmm. And I spoke there, and I was able to donate my books to the Golden Temple, which was, you know, this was just a huge, soul-enriching experience, right? I mean, I, I didn't think that that's where I would go to. Now I've left my resource as a, as a resource for, you know the global community and, and I know that people come from around the world to the Golden Temple to learn about uh, Sikhism. So mm-hmm. now my book is a legacy there. I never imagine imagined that in a million years. So I would say I feel both I feel you know very closely connected to my roots in Punjab mm-hmm. in particular but I also am very proud of the rich Canadian heritage that we have. We are you know we have a longstanding tradition of contribution here. And we should be proud of that. And I, I'm hoping that my work inspires youth to also take some time to learn a little bit about their history and their culture. And again, to be proud, I want to change the narrative of what we, we see and hear in the media. What I grew up listening to was a lot of negativity around the, the Sikh community and the South Asian community. I hope to change that narrative and really start to bring some stories of uh, that are inspiring, enlightening, and really, again, go back to the contribution of our people to the, to, to the, to the roots here.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you, ref- you referred to yourself as a, a citizen uh, historian. Uh, I know, that obviously, you'll be introducing this film uh, at the uh, Sikland Film Festival this fall. Does this end your journey, or do you think this has whetted your appetite to do more, uh, whether it's writing or uh, working on documentaries moving forward?
4: well this continues to evolve and uh I've, there's i have a project that's happening in the future it is a uh, it is a it is actually a theater production based on stories in my book if you can believe it um so now it's coming it's gone from a book to a film to you know on a global stage right back to local in the community where we're going to be telling the stories of our early settlers in the form of theater and that's again i am not i have never produced a film i've never written a book and i've never produced a play but hey you know why not Why, why not why not try and if it means that these stories continue to inspire others and people learn from them you know i i truly believe that history if it is not spoken if it is not taught it is lost. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot to be learned about the struggles that our, that our ancestors faced. It was not easy. They faced a lot of discrimination, a lot of barriers to survive and to thrive. And um, there's, we need to learn about
0: what, what it was really like for them. Karen, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Jess. I recall yesterday, former Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan uh, was on the show, uh, and we were talking about Lord Roberts Elementary School, which is based in the West End uh, here in Vancouver. It was originally built in 1901. Uh, there was a vote um, that basically started the process to changing the name of that school. Now, Lord Roberts was uh, celebrated as a British general during the Boer War. Um, and he was involved, of course, uh, in the war there in South Africa in the 20th century, in the early parts of the 20th century. Uh, many people celebrated his military leadership. Uh, but there's also been a focus placed on his use of concentration camps uh, in uh, South Africa as well. Um, and many have argued that, look, if you're going to change names, we need a new process or a process that uh, that perhaps does a better job in fundamentally researching some of these individuals whose names we want to take off. Uh, Mr. Sullivan basically felt that we, were, were we collectively, as, as citizens, I guess, or as society, have been too aggressive with changing names, certainly in the city of Vancouver. Take a listen to what uh, Mayor Sullivan said yesterday.
3: I've been watching just out of the corner of my eye as the Vancouver School Board has really gone into this aggressive, name-changing program. They've, I've heard more, more, than a, more than 20 schools that have been proposed. And uh, when the Lord Roberts came up, I said, hold on a sec. I, I was the uh, honorary major of the BC Regiment, and Lord Roberts was the first general ever to lead Vancouver soldiers in a war. And they went to fight slavery. And uh, I thought, they're missing the whole point. That they're, The reasons they gave were really what you would find in a Wikipedia Google search.
0: That was former Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan on the show yesterday. Joining me now is Breen olette He's a Vancouver-based lawyer of Métis descent. And Breen comes on our show many times to talk about a variety of political issues. I wanted to chat with him today on some of the comments that uh, Sam Sullivan made in the broader issue of Of changing names and what the process should be. First of all, Breen, first welcome to the show. Thanks again. Good to have you. I know you have a very busy schedule. I always appreciate you making time for us. Your thoughts, first and foremost, on um, Mr. Sullivan's comments that we've been a bit too aggressive with name changing and that we need a new process.
5: Well, I mean, as far as aggressiveness goes, the first thing that comes to my mind is who are we recognizing now? And um, Mr. Sullivan's put out a, a a video that goes to pretty great lengths to um, to um, defend Lord Roberts and what happened uh, in in his uh, career in his military career, and I think that it maybe is a little softer than than it could be. So first, we have to ask ourselves: is someone who devised a plan to burn farms and place the population in concentration camps um, for whatever the intention was, whether it was a good intention or not. And then he left. And then when he came back later and found that it was wildly out of control and thousands of children, primarily children, were dying in the camps and he chose to do nothing, is that a person that we want to hold up mm-hmm. as somebody that is you know, on the side of a school, somebody that we're respecting? Um, and then, more generally, who do we want to respect in Canada? Do we want to uh, respect the people of this land—Canadians, Indigenous people, people who have contributed directly to Canada—or do we want to respect the British? And I think there's a growing movement that uh, that wants to focus more on on us, on Canada. I mean, it was just uh, this week was uh, the anniversary of the patriation of Canada's Constitution when the UK finally gave up power over our Constitution, and it was ours. Um, I think the timing on that is, has been playing around in my head and saying, yeah, we we as a country, as Canada, we should be looking more at what we've done, what we've accomplished, and when we're looking at uh, promoting people, we should really be looking at, is there something here that, that we don't agree with, that we wouldn't respect, um, because I believe there are many people who are of of great note historically who don't have skeletons in the closet of the order of crimes against humanity.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you say to the argument that Mr. Sullivan made that we've fallen into this uh, presentism, I think he called it, which is basically uh, taking the norms and values of today, collectively as a society, and then... Uh, judging people from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and somehow you know, saying those people are not fit to have their name on a public institution uh, because they don't meet the norms of today? I
5: think that it's, um, you know, the, once again, it's a, it's a question of degrees. And uh, I have seen Mr. Sullivan talk about canceling people. I don't think that Lord Roberts is at risk of being cancelled. Mm-hmm. I think that history will remember Lord Roberts, no matter what. Um, but uh, who who we remember in Vancouver, the people that matter to us in Vancouver, who have mattered in the past, matter in the present, I think that is a very fine focus for us to have. I don't think we have to rely on um, on a, a predominantly... British recognition, which has been one of the complaints that people have made about the the naming of many different uh, monuments, schools, and so forth around the city.
0: I think there's 25 plus that are of uh, individuals of British heritage or lords uh, in the Vancouver area. Others are based on geography and and, and other folks of other backgrounds as well, but you're right, the the majority there, and Lord Roberts would fit into that as well. Now, one of the other arguments uh, that uh, Mr. Sullivan made was that, look, uh, Marie Sinclair, who was the chair of the... uh, Reconciliation Commission, uh, who also felt that renaming schools and institutions was counterproductive. Uh, it produced anger at times, didn't encourage harmony. Uh, what do you say to that comment from Mr. Sullivan?
5: Well, I, I have reviewed um, Senator slash Judge slash Commissioner Sinclair's uh, uh, comments that were made, and they were a little more sophisticated than what uh, Mr. Sullivan has presented. The uh, Mr. Sinclair said that um, the focus shouldn't be on fighting about removing names; it should be on presenting a balanced history of Canada. And one of you know, speaking to reconciliation, it's not local to to BC, but one of the things that um, Mr. Sinclair has spoken about in the past is the Selkirk Treaty and how. Um, You know, Lord Selkirk, who happens to be one of the people named on one of the schools in Vancouver, is recognized for for, uh, brokering this treaty. But Chief Pegwis, uh, a a SOTO chief, has never been really adequately recognized at all. And so what uh, Mr. Sinclair's point was, was there should be a balance of indigenous people, you know, Canadian people, immigrants. Uh, The people who've really contributed to the fabric of this country should be Represented in mosaic. I I I'm putting some words in his mouth, but I think that's where he was going with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you okay with some of these names of present schools that have been named for many many decades, and some of them may be of British heritage or other heritage as well? That if we start, that we do actually should should be replacing some of these names.
5: Yeah, so I'm I am comfortable with re- replacing names on on anything, uh, but I'm I'm very I'm much, I'm very much a modernist. Person, <laughs> so <laughs> I like to I like to keep moving forward. I think it's important to recognize the past, remember the past. Uh, I think there are better ways to remember the past than others, and yeah. I, I think that life should always be
0: balanced. We're speaking to Brine olette Vancouver-based lawyer. We we're talking about. Uh, naming our public institutions, whether they be schools or others. uh, We had former Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan on yesterday uh, who said, slow down for a moment here, folks. We were talking specifically about Lord Roberts School, which was built in 1901. There was moved, of course, changed the name of that school. It's located in the city's uh, west end. Uh, Many have said, look, uh, they support this process of changing names. Others say, wait a minute here. Uh, Perhaps we need to do a better job in um, maybe talking about when school's name should be changed and what are the parameters that we we, we change with so uh, it's a very interesting conversation I wanted to talk to Breen as well after talking to uh, uh, Sam Sullivan yesterday um, let's just talk walk away from school just for a moment Breen uh, what we saw with the Gassy Jack um, uh, uh, statue in Gastown we certainly know Gassy Jack's uh, background um, uh, you know Today's times or those times, hideous at the end of the day. Um... Would you support something like that with some with a group a group of folks who clearly know the history took the statue down? We've seen in other locations where other uh, even elected officials from the past have had those statues have come down as well. Would you? I mean, I'm not saying asking to be whether you're supportive of that of those types of actions that are unilateral. Um, but how do we judge some of these individuals of the past, like a former prime minister or a premier, who may not? be the most perfect human being, uh, A, or B, certainly does not fit the norms and values of today?
5: Well, I mean, Gassy Jack is a really interesting subject because there was a unilateral tearing down of the the monument, and um, uh, some of the host nations, uh, I can't remember if all of them, but I know some of them uh, were not happy that that unilateral decision was made without their input. And I think that's a very fine point, is that um, when we start making unilateral decisions to tear something down, then there's, there are risks. It creates risks to people in the population. There can be misdirected uh, anger and violence. Um, so it, I think it is best to go through a process and to make sure that process is fair. I think it's also really important to note that um, on a lot of these decisions that should involve the host nations... Uh, the capacity funding isn't there, and yeah. so they can't they they don't have the capacity to come into the conversation because they're they're being invited in if they pay their own way and in their in their eyes that's um that's not an invitation that's very reconciliatory, and I think I agree with
0: that position. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go to the open line. If you do have uh, your uh, thoughts on uh, what we should be doing in regards to uh, changing names, what should the process be in changing names, potentially, of public institutions, give me a call, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to George in Abbotsford. Hi, George.
3: Good show as always, Jazz. Thank you. You know, Jazz, mm -hmm. it seems as a senior... It seems daily that we're meant to feel guilty as Canadians about our past. It seems every day. And when you look at name changes, I think of Dundas Street in Toronto. Thousands of businesses and corporations, hundreds and hundreds along Dundas Street. Is there no thought given to the cost, the cost for each one of those corporations and individuals and condo dwellers?
6: to go through the whole address change for the sake of naming, renaming
1: something. Mm -hmm. I I just, I just shake my my head about this. I'm sorry.
0: No, I appreciate your call, George. I mean, uh, uh, let me just try to phrase what George is saying. I understand his frustration. First of all, thank you for calling in, George. Appreciate it. Um, there is a frustration there from some from some citizens. They say, look, this isn't the norm. This hasn't been the norm. And he does raise a, a practical issue. Let's say if you change the name of a street, it does impact businesses. It does impact everyday people. Um, and there are those who say, look, it's an attack on, on European culture, European heritage, European pioneers, who've also helped build this province and build this country. Um, I mean, I, I guess there's no perfect way to do this, and that's part of the challenge is trying to build this new country, whether it be you call it reconciliation, well, you just call it modern Canada. And it's not just about reconciliation. It's about, as you say, new immigrants, new pioneers, an issue of greater power with women, recognizing their contribution as well. It's yes. predominantly been a, a very narrow sort of sector of people that we've been using and naming institutions after. How do we get to that point? So George, who sounds like a really fine gentleman, and he is, but he's frustrated. And I don't blame, his fr- blame him for that frustration.
5: Well, and I see two parts to it. So first of all, George Fields uh, like he's under attack, um, or that that he should be guilty, and I, you know, when I talk, I, I'm going to give an example. It's a little bit outside of uh, BC, but when I was at uh, at a tribunal uh, at uh, Beardy's Okamasis Reserve in Saskatchewan about a decade ago, it was a it was a Canadian tribunal to uh, to determine recompense for. Um, an injury to uh, Beardy's uh, descent, uh ancestors. And uh, an elder got up and he was talking. And what struck me was when he said, you know, we're not asking, we're not, we're not in this process, we're not even asking for, for restitution. We're not asking for, uh, for, some grand apology. We're just asking Canada to live up to the promises that were originally made. Um, he didn't want to assign blame. He didn't want to punish anybody. And I think that goes for a lot of Indigenous people in this country. We, we, aren't, we aren't blaming you, George. Um, what we're asking you to do is open your eyes to the complete history of Canada and accept those wrongs that have occurred. And let's work forward together to
0: make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil from Vancouver. Let's go to Phil. Hi, Phil. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. What's on your mind? Uh, just with the name-changing thing, I mean, I,
1: I think I've got a solution to it. I mean, instead of renaming uh, all these old buildings and so on, mm-hmm. why not, I mean, we're doing a lot of development, we're building a lot of buildings, but so just just name the new buildings after all these uh, Canadians and so on that you want to name them after, and that way everyone's happy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it would be a practical, pragmatic response uh, to some of this. But, uh, you know, we're not building too many schools too often. I mean, it's hard enough to get funding these days. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be changed, but it has. To, it is a movement that grows out of a neighborhood. There is a process there in regards to who can change a name. I can't you know, be coming in from the suburbs say, I want to change the Lord Roberts name. It's got to be the area. It's got to be citizens. It's got to be the taxpayers there uh, as well. But it is a a very interesting conversation and a fascinating one. Breen, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I talked to Sam yesterday. He had some very thoughtful comments, but I did want to hear from you on this issue as well. Thank you so much.
5: Always a pleasure.
0: Now, I think everybody uh, agrees we have some challenges when it comes to housing. You hear about it on almost a daily basis. Uh, when it comes to the CKNW newscast or one of our talk shows, we're always focusing on this issue. Well, some hotels and resorts now in British Columbia and elsewhere in our province are putting, together, are putting temporary foreign workers up in rooms just to make sure they have enough staff to get through the summer season. Joining me now to talk about this issue uh, is Ingrid Jarrett, President and CEO of the British Columbia Hotel Association. Ingrid, thank you for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. So how did we get to this point, uh, and, and how widespread is this issue?
6: Well, it, you know, we have had a lack of housing availability for many years in some destinations. Mm-hmm. And um, it certainly increasingly has become uh, more and more difficult to find long-term rental housing or seasonal rental housing. And, you know, probably eight to ten years ago, it was primarily resort destinations, but we are seeing all over the province uh, that that's not necessarily the case. And so as a solution, we have some um, resort destinations like Sun Peaks, for example, that has the industry and the municipality have gotten together and really looked at developing and building uh, staff housing. But that would be for a municipality that was really tourism-driven like Sun Peaks, which is about uh, skiing in the winter and then, of course, golfing and hiking and biking in the summer.
7: Mm
6: -hmm. Um, But other destinations may not actually have the land available, nor do they have the capacity... To be able to be building housing because that generally is for builders or developers not for hotels you know our our business is is running hotels motels and accommodations lodges etc and we're seeing in both small towns as well as urban cities an increasingly difficult time for available affordable rental housing so quite a few years now there has been <laughs> the need for hotels to either take inventory out and just put it to the side because they don't have enough people to potentially clean the rooms or service the rooms or to actually house potential employees in those rooms instead of selling them. Now, I do want to say that this isn't just foreign workers. This is anybody that is coming to uh, live and work in a location um, that can't find can't find uh, affordable housing so that could be somebody from Ontario or the Maritimes or Alberta or a different region of British Columbia it's not just foreign workers
0: so you were talking about uh, you know this potentially you know the concern many years ago is this resort community so this is happening in even places like Vancouver and Victoria or are we talking about small yeah. communities so there yeah. are there are hotels and,
6: and- Smaller communities as well. You know, it's happening all over British Columbia because there is no available, affordable housing to rent, and so it's difficult if somebody is coming and wanting to work, for example, from May to October or, you know, July and August, whatever that it might be. Um, and so this is a solution, and it's not a it's not a great solution for the hotel, and it's not really a great solution for the employee either, but at least they have um, housing uh, uh, provided, and therefore the hotel is able to hire uh, that individual to work.
0: Now, do you see this only happening this year in regards to how widespread it is, or do you think this is going to continue into next year as well?
6: Well, we sure hope it doesn't, but unless there is long-term rental housing that is freed up in different communities, I just don't know how the hotels would be able to find another solution. You know, it's really like, you know, if you have a grocery store and you can only sell, you know, half of your store shelves being Mm -hmm. full. It's exactly the same thing. You can only sell a room once a night. And so it's disposable. And you either need to hire people to service those rooms and your guests that you're housing or you need to make sure that you're housing them so that they can actually service the guests that are able to come.
0: We we already have a shortage of hotel rooms, I believe, in the downtown Vancouver. And I, I don't want to just harp on downtown Vancouver. There's a whole, whole province there. But we already have a shortage, do we not, of hotel rooms, uh, generally speaking, in downtown Vancouver?
6: We do. And, you know, there's many locations around the province. It's not just Vancouver mm-hmm. that has a shortage of hotels. That being said, we have many hotels that are currently in the pipeline to be built around uh, the province, including downtown Vancouver. Um, And so additional hotel rooms um, is a good thing for both the economy, for employment, for the communities uh, that they're being built in. But that doesn't alleviate the need for additional uh, affordable and available rental
0: housing. Is there anything uh, the provincial government can do in this case uh, to alleviate some of these issues? Because as you say, this is not a great plan. It is a plan of the moment. It is short term um, beyond just building more rental housing, of course. But is there anything the government can do in this case to help to alleviate some of the concerns for your sector?
6: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I, I can say that I'm very encouraged with the current government's focus on, and there's been many announcements Mm -hmm. around the work that they're doing on uh, affordable uh, rental housing. Um, Of course, like you, I don't know the inside workings of what that looks like, but I'm very encouraged because I I can say that this I do not think has been a priority for many years. Um, and it has been getting worse for many years. So it's time for us to focus on it mm-hmm. and make sure that we provide the landscape and the incentives to be able to build more or, um, you know, repurpose. I, I just don't know what that answer is, but I do know that it doesn't matter if it's downtown Vancouver, if it's Victoria, if it's the Soyuz, if it's Prince Rupert, if it's Fernie, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you are there is currently a severe lack of affordable available rental
0: housing. Ingrid, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. More than 100,000 federal public servants represented by the Public Servants Alliance of Canada including over 30,000 workers at the Canadian Revenue Agency, walked off the job today after the union and the government failed to make any uh, progress uh, on negotiations for a new collective agreement. Many issues uh, are still being discussed. Both sides remain at odds over a number of those issues, including wages and remote work. Joining me now is Jamie Mills, Public Servants Alliance of Canada's Regional Executive Vice President for British Columbia. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me today, Jeff. Uh, I know a very busy day for you. Give me a sense of what it's been like out on the picket lines for you guys. Uh, Well, today in Vancouver, it
8: was cold and it was wet. And I can tell you that our members were out there in numbers and they are extraordinarily frustrated with their employer.
0: Um, Let's uh, maybe we should talk about this right off the top. Just walk me through some of the key issues uh, that uh, there is still a lot of room in regards to negotiations.
8: Uh, well, I think that there's a couple of key issues, uh, hopefully some closer than not, and I think you really nailed them on the head. One of them is uh, a wage in- increase for our members that's uh, really recognizing the increased cost of living and the rate of inflation. Uh, additionally, it is uh, enshrining work from home or like I think you call it, return to office mm-hmm. in our collective agreement, as opposed to it just being an employer policy. Uh, another big issue is uh, contracting out of our work to the private sector.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk talk a little bit about. Uh, and obviously, you're not going to find a solution. You, we're not going to find uh, an agreement here. But you and I uh, debating this. But I just want to make sure we uh, we we nail the numbers down here correctly. The government is offering the federal government is offering nine percent, and the union is asking for thirteen and a half percent wage increase over three years.
8: So we are asking for 13.5%, which is 4.5% per year, Mm -hmm. and the employer has moved forward on their proposal. Their 9% includes 1.5% in 2021, 4.5%, and then 3%. So it's really a low percentage in the year that inflation was the highest.
0: Okay. And in regards to the remote work, uh, whether working from home or back to the offices, you said, you know, many Canadians have been told by their employers, look, you've got to come back to work. Why should that not apply to, to federal workers? So we're not
8: saying that our members shouldn't be going back to the workplace. And in fact, a lot of our members never stopped going to their workplace. Mm-hmm. Food inspectors, border officers, those folks in trades. What we really want is for our members to have some say over how remote work is applied to them uh, so that they have some sort of recourse in their collective agreement, uh, particularly in cases where one manager might be applying it to two different people in the same situation in an arbitrary fashion. We recognize that our, our, especially our office workers, in some fashion will have to go back to the workplace.
0: I mean, from what I can tell so far, it doesn't seem like the government and the union are too far apart.
8: I would say on wages, we're inching our way towards getting an agreement hopefully sooner than later. Mm -hmm. But the Treasury Board President, Mona Forche, has said they're not willing to negotiate a work-from-home policy into the collective agreement, which is going to be a major sticking point for some of our bargaining units. Uh,
0: You had mentioned contracting out. How much contracting out is done now that impacts your union?
8: Uh, I couldn't give you a percentage, but what I can say is that contracting out historically? When you look at when it's brought back into the public service, it's done better by public servants, and there's always a cost savings.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the impact of COVID. I mean, walk me through what impact COVID has had on your mem- on your members of the last two or three years, uh, especially for for a federal public service worker. Walk me through what it's had on the system.
8: So our members throughout COVID have been here for Canada the entire time. Uh, Some folks have had to work from home 100% of the time and completely changed the way that their work was done. But we have to remember that we did have a lot of our members that were still required to go into their workplace, Uh, specifically, like I was saying, with uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, with the Canadian Coast Guard, a lot of folks working for departments in Fisheries and Oceans. But really what the biggest change was for the longest time the employer said that working from home was not feasible, it was not realistic, and we really proved that we, our members can be just as productive at home as they are in the workplace. And in a lot of cases, I think if you looked at the stats, they're probably more productive because they don't have as many distractions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um in regards to essential services here, uh, I'm trying to th- uh, understand here. So the passport office at this point, that's going to be a, a big challenge for folks if they're looking for something in regards to getting a, pa- a passport uh, renewed quickly.
8: Well, I think that there's going to be a lot of delays that people are going to see. Employment insurance, passport, immigration applications, uh, the tax system is going to be pretty much shut down. There could be interruptions in the trade and supply system, such as those that. Ports, harbors or airports. We could see longer wait times at the border because the administrative staff is on strike. Uh, but going back to passports with the emergency service, uh, emergency, the ESA, really the only passports that will be issued are in an emergency uh, situation.
0: And when you were talking about um, the CRA workers, Canadian Revenue Agency, a lot of that is automated though. You're saying that still there will be an impact just because you still need human beings to be doing a lot of this work.
8: Uh, the call center is all human beings, so anyone trying to get in touch with the call center will have a very difficult time.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, and correct me if I'm wrong here, not not that you're the official spokesperson here, but there's been no uh, extension yet on on taxes in regards to filing your taxes.
8: I'm not the official spokesperson, but the Canada Revenue Agency has not extended the the tax filing deadline.
0: Well, I hope you do find a solution to this quickly. I think uh, Canadians would love to see that as well. Uh, And thank you so much for your time. I did see your members out uh, downtown today walking the block out together. It's day one, uh, lots of days ahead, uh, but uh, hopefully there's a solution uh, sooner rather than later. Jamie, thank you so much for your time today.
8: Thanks a lot, Jazz. We hope that there's a solution as well on behalf of all Canadians.
0: Uh, That is Jamie Mills, a Public Service Alliance of Canada's Regional Executive Vice President uh, for British Columbia. Uh, We were out and about today as well talking to some of those workers picketing. Our Stephen Chang spoke to some of them. Take a listen to some of the comments uh, from them from this morning.
4: It's like there's um, good energy. You know, we worked all through uh, COVID. A lot of people came into the office. You know, we're essential workers. You know, put their health online and everything. And we've been like two years without a contract. Um, and what we're being offered does not um, cover um, cost of living increase. So our wages are essentially going down. So, you know, people are very committed that we, you know, this is an expensive city to live in. We just want you know, fair wages and to keep up with uh, cost of living.
1: I think as far as the mood and just, you know, the general reasonably peaceful, the businesses around here seem to be, you know, we're not, uh, nobody is coming out, uh, nobody seems to be offended that we're, we're, we're picketing on the, on the sidewalk, that the access to the businesses are all available, so that's good. I'm glad that we're not just, you know, inconveniencing those people that have nothing to do with it. So that's one good thing, Um, and I'm glad about the turnout.
8: We were all curious about what the turnout was going to be like. I mean, as far as uh, stuff falling apart last night, it's disappointing. I think a lot of people I talked to wanted the initial settlement to happen and for the government and the union to come together, that didn't happen. So we're out here today. Um, I think all we're asking for is a little bit of um, raised to keep up with the way things have been going. It's tough for everybody. We all acknowledge that. Uh, but I think what we're asking for is not a huge stretch okay. by any imagination. So.
9: We want to do our jobs, that we, we see integrity in our jobs. And we do want to help the people where they're in different departments. Like with us, we're in immigration. And we see people coming in or people trying to correspond with us with how they want to be, you know, united with their families here in Canada. There is that urgency, but at the same time, you have to work together with your union and you have to like, work as one to find that change that it's not, it's not even a debate that it is difficult to live in the city. A lot of people are working downtown, but they live like far. And the expectations to just keep working, the expectations to continue going to work in the offices when you can clearly work better remotely and uh, you know reduce your cost whether by gas or by like that just the time it takes for you to have to go to work it's not that we don't want to do our work we find that there is good with our work but it's just we have to work together to ask for the conditions to have a living wage and to be able to survive living here in
0: what do you think of that last caller uh, talking about uh, working from home, greater flexibility, working from home? Call me on uh, the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you. The wages are a challenge, as we said, uh, 13.5% that the union is asking for. The government is at 9%. Uh, but as uh, James uh, Jamie Mills said there uh, during the interview, they're a lot closer than people think. So that's that's good to hear. Contracting out is a challenge, of course. But uh, the, the working from home or at least some flexibility in regards to working from the home and off. Uh, That seems to be a sticking point as well. They were talking about the Vancouver Park Board. Um, We'll be looking at a new potential, I guess, uh, swimming policy. More importantly, what you can or cannot wear at Vancouver uh, uh, pools. Uh, The policy will be looked at at next Monday's uh, park board meeting. This came after many of the uh, staff of the Vancouver Park Board, those that work at the pools, they asked for that policy to be established to help them manage some of the situations that they have seen uh, at Vancouver Pools. Uh, it's also not just about taste, but what other things people are wearing as well. It's basically decide what should or should not be allowed at Vancouver Pools. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this new uh, conversation there at Vancouver Park Board is Scott Jensen, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Scott, thank you for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So I know you'll be looking at this uh, bit of policy uh, next Monday, uh, but how did we get here?
1: Well, Parkport Park staff and aquatic services have raised concerns, and they just wish to have a policy um, to assist them in managing situations where uh, patrons uh, that attend our aquatic facilities um, you know, present themselves in a tire that um, is um, due to various levels of tolerance. Um, uh, it makes it a little difficult for them to swim, and so it's a, it's a safety issue for, um, for us uh, moving forward.
0: Uh, and this uh, has been going on for some time now. This is to, to the point where staff have had to go to the, the actual park board, elected officials here to look at this particular policy then?
1: Yes. And, and again, the the staff have had to, you know, deal with this with a, a number of, of um, uh, users to our, our facilities. And again, you know, our uh, staff always treat um, our users with respect and, you know, just want to make sure that, that, uh, the, the policy is clear so that when users come there is no uh, um, concern in regards to what is and is not appropriate in in our swimming facilities.
0: Is the concern that some of the uh, bathing suits are too small?
1: No the, the, the present issue is is those that are a risk to the patrons And so when it's a risk to the patrons it's also a risk to our lifeguards. Um, so the, the biggest concern are, are those that are going to be risky for for people that are um, using the aquatic centers
0: when you say risk to patrons can you can you elaborate a little bit on that
1: well so the you know someone that's swimming in uh, a pool that's wearing say um, you know, let let's say they they instead of wearing a t-shirt they decided to wear a a sweatshirt and they swim, that sweatshirt is going to absorb a lot of water and it's going to become a danger for that swimmer um, as it becomes more and more heavier for them to swim. And then if they need to be um, uh, rescued from the pool, then a a staff is going to have to carry that person out of the water. And and again, with a heavier garb like that, it's going to make it more difficult for them. So um, when we look at uh, a swimmer using our, our pools, we want to make sure that they're using it in a very safe manner.
0: Uh, this isn't about taste, then.
1: No, um, certainly one of the um, the expectations of of where that is to be considered um, not to be worn are things that are, are sexual or intimate wear. Um, you know, typically, you know, that's going to be deemed uh, underwear, and and so we're going to be uh, uh, part of this policy to ensure people are wearing um, swimming wear. And again, the appropriate tire for swimming is a bathing suit or swim trunks, board shorts, T-shirt shorts, a burkini, uh, swim hijab, leggings, and a tunic, a rash guard, or a wetsuit. Uh,
0: why does it have to go all the way to the park board level uh, with elected officials having to have this conversation? Could it not just be operational where it just gets dealt with and quickly and, and one would argue just common sense for some people that maybe you shouldn't be wearing a, a sweatshirt when you're swimming because of health, uh, safety issues?
1: Well, the key here is to be consistent across all of our facilities. So by having the, the board uh, create this policy, uh, it's going to ensure that when a, a user goes to Hillcrest um, to use Percy Norman Pool, that uh, they'll get the same level of, of service as when they go to, say, Britannia Pool, and the expectation for wear is the same across the city.
0: Mm. Uh, on a side note, there have been some concerns, obviously, that pools have been open for the entire summer season, and this is prior to uh, this last uh, uh, civic election. Uh, do you foresee challenges ahead at this point in regards to keeping su- the pools open uh, this summer, or, or are we getting to the point where we're actually going to have pools open for the full season?
1: Um, our pools are expected to be open. Um, I, I've been really pleased with the uh, level of attention that Parkport staff have, have um Put into ensuring that our facilities are uh, getting the upgrades and, and the serve, or not upgrades, but the uh, maintenance that's necessary for them to be open on time. Certainly, Kits Pool is, is um, you know a big issue. We we're still working on you know ensuring that uh, that's ready for opening uh, day, um, and you know we are on track with that. Uh, but um, And then the other issue for us is just ensuring that uh, we have enough lifeguards and I'm not sure if you've noticed but uh, the Park Board recently announced that uh, we're doing a big uh, hiring push for lifeguards so um, if any listener out there is, is looking to uh, get into becoming a lifeguard I, I do direct them to the Park Board website where they can uh, get more information about becoming a lifeguard and uh, one of the interesting things i've heard is that you know some retirees that uh, are looking to get back into the workforce you might uh you'll find that this is a a a great way to get back and and uh you know so you know this is not you know a, a teenager's job anymore this is a, a job that's open for for all all people so um if you're interested in becoming a lifeguard um you'll please reach out but uh, that's uh, something that the, the staff at uh, Parkport have been really working hard at to ensuring that we have enough lifeguards.
0: Scott, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.
9: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.